here, I just feel like we're in over our heads with this whole thing, you know? It's like we started out wanting to make a documentary on cults. And now we're in one? Yeah, that's investigative journalism. She's dangerous, Peter. You said that yourself. What do you want to do? You want to go back to our normal lives? That's fine, we can do that. I can teach all day. You can stay home and write and surf the web. And on the weekends, we can get wasted at various art installations or sneak 40s into random foreign films. And then it's suddenly like we wake up and, whoops, where did our 20s go? But somewhere in the valley, there is a woman living in a basement who claims to be from the future. She's actually amassing followers. These people who believe that she'll lead them to salvation or whatever. And yes, she's dangerous. But we have to see this thing through all the way or we're chumps. Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a duo Just an old second Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And in today's episode, we're looking at the 2011 cult thriller, Sound of My Voice. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Well, we're still putting out the backer-only special episodes every couple of weeks in between the regular episodes, and... Ooh, we've done various episodes on books, films, TV that we're watching. So if you want to listen in on those, then jump over to Patreon and back us at any level. And as I mentioned a little while back, I recorded my old Cthulhu Dark scenario, Fairyland, with Ain't Slayed Nobody recently. And they've put out the last part now. Well, I say now, at the time of recording, it's fairly recently out. By the time this goes out, it will have been out for a while. But either way, I'll link to it from the show notes. I think Cuppy Cup was talking about compiling all the episodes together into a single download. So that may be available by the time this goes out as well, in which case I shall link to that. Be warned, it is nasty. We've had a number of people comment on the Ain't Slayed Nobody Discord server and saying that they were, <laughs> I think they were surprised at how dark it went and thought that it was probably one of the darkest actual plays they'd heard recorded. So I'll, I'll take that as a point of pride. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, surprised if you didn't, being, knowing that particular scenario. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just got back from Gen Con and had a great time in America. <laughs> um, what are you laughing it's a long way from oh, your computer, yeah. Is, <laughs> sorry, is this... Are we in the upside down now, or is this the real world? I keep getting confused. I don't think I've ever lived in the real world, Paul. Oh, okay. No, sorry, okay. In this... Yeah, I didn't go to Gen Con in this dimension. Okay. And yeah, we didn't no, go to Continuum either. Yeah. No. Actually, nothing has happened, ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all fine. And now on to our main topic, Sound of My Voice. Well, we've just done a whole series of uh, episodes on cults, on real-world cults and how they might influence our games. And we thought, as we've done in the past, it might be interesting to follow that up with a film on the subject. Paul suggested Sound of My Voice because I, I think... Am I right in thinking that it was because you liked the OA and it was the, the connection there? Yeah, I'd seen the film before. I'd forgotten right. that it is actually features a couple of people who are aiming to make a documentary about a cult. Mm. I remembered that they were entering the cult, but the documentary side had escaped me. So it's kind of really relevant to what we talked about in the cults episode because they are a couple of people actually investigating a cult. Well, we'll dig into all that stuff in a moment. Before we get to that, though, let's just talk a bit about where the film came from. Well, it's a 2011 independent production distributed by Fox Searchlight in 2012. Don't expect going into this that this is going to be a high-quality production. It looks like it was made on uh, pretty much the same kind of budget you'd buy a packet of fags with. Yeah, this is a very, very low-budget film that was largely shot in just locations they had access to. I mean, that said, I mean, they had a fully professional crew. It's not like some very low-budget films I've seen, you know, some amateur films I've seen where it's just like one guy with a shaky camcorder and some special effects added on afterwards digitally. So, you know, it is it is a, you know, relatively slick professional production done on a micro-budget. 
Hmm. Oh, it's definitely a step up from Blair Witch level of uh, quality, yeah. You're setting the bar pretty low there, Matt. <laughs> it's written by Zold Backmanglish and Britt Marling and directed by Backmanglish. The two of them met in film school and have been collaborating ever since. Sound of My Voice was their first feature film. They've got a number of other films and projects that they've worked on. This film was intended to be part of an ongoing series of three films or maybe a web series or whatever, but there's only one film that ever got made. Watching it, you wouldn't think, oh, there's going to be more parts because it does kind of, I would argue, it kind of wraps up, but then, you know, mm -hmm. obviously it could perhaps continue as well. I thought it had a pretty definite ending. I didn't see how there was much room to continue it or much will to yeah. continue it. Uh, there are some similarities to the OA, uh, a television program uh, also created by Marling and Batman Gleesh for Netflix, which has run for two seasons. Yeah, I think we'll talk a little bit about that at the end because... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, my, my impression is that when they didn't get the financing to do the rest of the films in this series, they repackaged some of the ideas and turned it into the OA. Yeah. Well, let's take a look at what actually happens in Sound of My Voice. The film's set in Los Angeles in 2010, and our protagonists are Lorna, a writer, and Peter, her boyfriend. He's also a substitute teacher, and they're both in their 20s. As the film starts, Lorna and Peter are washing in a ritualistic manner before changing into anonymous white uniforms, being blindfolded and having their hands bound and put in the back of a car. It's not like they're being abducted here. It's like they're being willfully put into this position. It, but it feels very strange. You don't know what's going on. Mm. What, what the hell is happening here? It, it definitely reeks to me of, hey, you're going to a secret meeting. We don't want you to know where it is. Yeah. Yeah, but the whole very ritualised form of the washing and cleansing beforehand and the the fact that everyone involved, including the person driving them, were dressed in the same white uniform seemed to indicate something a little odder than just you're going off to a secret location. The two arrive in an unnamed location where they head down into the basement. There they're greeted by an older, very hippie, hippie-ish man, uh, Klaus, dressed in the same white uniform. He greets them with an elaborate handshake, and boy does that handshake go on till it seems like I've lost the will to live. And it acts as a ceremonial greeting whenever anyone arrives for the meeting. What if you've ever had the will to live, Matt? Hey, everything you watch saps the will to live out of you. Honestly, that did. It was like, how fucking long <laughs> do you want to go on to establish a secret handshake, for Christ's sake? It really, really was long. You didn't like it? I thought it was pretty cool. No. <laughs> it's kind of a uh, lots of slapping and clicking of fingers and sort of very kind of ritualistic. There's a number of other young people in attendance at the meeting. Klaus tells them they will not be able to ask any questions as this is just a preliminary first meeting. And then we're introduced to Maggie. This is the character played by Britt Marling, who comes out to meet the group. She's a charismatic young woman dressed again in white, but in her case, she's wearing this white shroud as well. And she's wheeling an oxygen tank behind her. And as we quickly discover... She claims to be a time traveller who has been sent back from 2054 from a world that has been ravaged by a new American civil war. The purpose of Maggie's journey is to prepare a group of followers for what is to come. This preparation takes the form of talks about what the future holds, as well as various psychological exercises and guided meditations. So what do you make of Maggie as the cult leader? Is she kind of like the ones we discussed in the previous episodes? I mean, not that there's just one size fits all, but is she unusual? Is she too sympathetic? Is she what you'd expect? Evasive and blatantly a fraud. From that was pretty much my immediate response to her, that this everything that comes out of her mouth is spin and bullshit. Right. I mean, that's interesting because from interviews with Marling and Batmanglish, they were very much trying to make sure that every point of contention all the way through this film was ambiguous, that every time a question was raised, there wasn't a firm answer. And so hmm. I, I guess in that respect, it sort of becomes a bit like a Rorschach test so that what you see in the film probably says more about the way you see the world than what's actually in the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can certainly see how they tried to make it ambiguous. I just think they failed at every attempt because everything for me struck as, oh, that's just an evasive answer. Oh, that's that's not right. This is bull. Mm. This is this is exactly what you'd say if you wanted to manipulate the facts when you're in that position. It, honestly, none of it came across as ambiguous to me. So in response to the question then, just like a cult leader. Yeah, pretty much. A, a perfect con, yeah. con, well, not perfect, but a fairly adept con woman. Yeah. 
I do see that. At the same time, as far as the actual cult is concerned, it didn't seem to be as, I don't know, quite as toxic as a lot of the cults we've talked about. Hmm. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll go into some of this as it goes hmm. on, but there's, I don't know, a sense of genuine community between the people there that feels more healthy and positive than I'd expect from a coercive, manipulative cult. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's certain things that go against that. But yeah, on the whole, it's not like your evil, megalomaniacal cult leader trying to work them towards a specific end. It's not got that, got that feeling of direction, really. Hmm. Well, we discover... As the film goes on, that Maggie's health has supposedly been damaged by the act of travelling back in time, and that being in 2010 is killing her. Am I right in remembering that this is put down to just the pathogens that she's not used to, or was it just something to do with the act of time travel? I can't even remember it being explained. I'm not quite sure that it's necessarily explained, no. Yeah. I think she's, she's, they do say she's allergic to everything yeah. uh, in this day and age. There's some unexplained reason. That's why she uses the oxygen tanks and why everyone has to bathe carefully before meeting her and stuff like that to avoid exposing her to all these toxins and pathogens. And also, she never leaves this building, this cult compound or whatever you want to call it. And also, as we later learn, she is relying very heavily on transfusions of blood that have been donated by other members of the cult, which, yeah, I thought added a certain creepy dimension to the whole thing that I liked. When Peter and Lorna get home, we learn that they're making a documentary to expose the cult. Yay, good for them. Peter's mother belonged to a cult, leaving him very wary of similar organisations. He and Lorna consider Maggie's group to be a dangerous cult. Uh, yeah, I, I think dangerous is overstepping the mark a bit. I think just, hey, they're a cult. <laughs> yeah, for the reasons Scott just mm -hmm. said, yeah. But they do make the point that they consider that Maggie is dangerous, that the organisation is dangerous. And, yeah, I mean, this immediately, I think, creates some tension within the film because, as weird as they may seem at this stage, there's nothing about them that necessarily gets flagged in our minds as being dangerous other than them being a cult, mm -hmm. which may be enough. So do we think that this is perhaps closer to a mythos cult than some of the real-world cults we talked about because of the, the sort of fantastical claims that Maggie is making? She's supposedly trying to offer some kind of proof of something beyond that it's not supposedly just faith we'll get into that in a moment but i think this strikes me as perhaps i you know i'd be interested in your your views perhaps a better model for how a cult might work in call of cthulhu than you know some of the ones we talked about i actually was thinking the reverse i think this is more real than a myth uh, mythos cult again this is just grounded in the work of a con artist and if anything has some degree of similarity at least in theme with the likes of heaven's gate because it's looking to a more almost sci-fi type theme, whereas Heaven's Gate was about, hey, there's a spaceship running alongside a comet, whereas this is, hey, there's going to be a civil war in a few years' time, I'm getting you ready for it. Both of which acted on, I'd say, very little evidence and virtually no proof of this happening, which obviously is a situation that follows up mm. in a coming scene. Yeah, I mean, in a forthcoming scene, we get the feeling that she can't give proof, and she actually argues that she can't give proof. It is down to her faith, really. Mm. in what she says being true. And one thing I hadn't picked up on during the course of the film, which I noticed referenced in an interview with Britt Marling afterwards, which is that the cult doesn't actually have a name in the film. In one, one of the original drafts of the script, it was given a name, and the name that it was given was apparently just going to be the IP address of the web server they used. Because it rolls off the tongue. Yeah. I just thought that was kind of a cool idea that for a start i mean if it's just accessible by ip address i mean that effectively makes it on the dark web because it's not indexed anywhere and just the name of the cult being effectively the password to go in and learn more about it by typing that into your web browser i don't know i think that's a really cool idea kind of sad that they didn't actually make that clear in the film mm. we're then introduced to abigail now we get different scenes here. Quite a few of them are in the basement where 
Britt Marling's character Maggie is located. Then some of the scenes are between Peter and Lorna, the couple who are investigating the cult. And then some of the scenes take place in other locations. And this is one such. This takes place in a classroom because we know that Peter is a teacher and he's in there with the class and they're all young girls, probably sort of eight, nine, ten years old. And there's this one young girl in a red woolly hat that makes her stand out. And her name is Abigail. And there's something unusual about her. She's kind of Mm. isolated, perhaps bullied by some of the other children. And we see her also in her home. And this is curious as well. It's not really explained, but she's making these strange, quite large sculptures from Black Lego in her bedroom. And just Black Lego bricks, no other colour. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You can have any colour you like as long as it's black. Considering the things that we learn about Abigail as this goes on, I mean, do we think there's any significance to the way she's portrayed, or is her eccentricity, is her strangeness just meant to be part of her character? I just took it that she was a kid that likes Lego and had some kind of medical condition because she had a particularly uh, wince-inducing injection scene later on. Oh, yeah, yeah, between uh, her toes. That, that was mm. an interesting one as well because, yeah, her father is giving her some kind of medication. We're not sure what it is. But yeah, like you say, he injects it between her toes. Now, I don't know how common that is. And the only time I've heard of people doing that before is, for example, junkies who are trying to hide track marks. Yeah. So it did make it look like her father was trying to cover up the fact that he was injecting his daughter. I got that vibe too. And having had injections down there, when I had two ingrown toenails removed, I had injections down in the base of my big toe. That really fucking hurts. So (laughs) (laughs) That scene made me really squirm. So Peter has been trying to film these meetings of the cult secretly. And the way he's been doing this is he's got this pair of horn-rimmed glasses that we've seen him wear at the meetings, but no other time. And we now learn that these have got a sort of miniature spy camera built into them. But this needs to broadcast. It doesn't actually have a recording medium built into the frames. And it's been failing so far because wherever they are, they're not able to get a signal out and it's not streaming the video he needs to actually record it. He hits upon this scheme of trying to smuggle a transmitter or a repeater into the cult meetings to boost the signal, which is this small device, a small plastic tube-shaped device. With a big green light on it. Yeah, And he's looking at ways of trying to hide it. The the method he chooses is to swallow it. So basically he covers it in butter and a bit of bread and swallows it like a very large pill, much to Lorna's disgust and alarm. I'm not the only one who thought he was going to shove it up his arse, am I? I thought that would have been the much more sensible route to go. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that would have been a lot easier. It certainly would have been, I'd say, safer as well, because that thing was big enough to be a choking hazard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like a memory stick size, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Like a big memory stick, yeah. If it works for drug traffickers, it can work for undercover journalists. We will see why in a moment. Yeah, because in, in a remarkable coincidence, that night they go to the group, and Maggie's leading them through an exercise that involves eating apples and then vomiting them straight back up. Hey, like I didn't see this coming. Peter resists, fearing discovery. No shit. But Maggie won't let him off the hook. Luckily, he manages to scoop up the repeater from his vomit before anyone sees. And again, another scene that takes a long time. But it's genuinely uncomfortable. I think it's quite a tense scene. So I don't think the length is is a problem. It builds up tension nicely. And this is one of these points where I'd sort of start challenging your assumption, Matt, that she is automatically a fraud. Because... In this scene, she very much zeroes in on Peter, and just from the body language and everything like that, it seems quite obvious to me that she's worked out he has something to hide. And the coincidence of this exercise involving vomiting seems to be too great at this stage. You know, mm. it, it doesn't necessarily make much sense beyond a ruse to get him to vomit this device out. So it's almost like if she is someone from the future who knew Peter in the time she came from, as an old man, then, yeah, this is 
a turning point in their relationship. I'd counter that because there's a couple of scenes that come up later on that reinforce my opinion of what's happened here is that she's obviously seen the fact that he is wearing a particular type of glasses. In fact, I think he's one of the only people in the group that does wear such uh, mm. such glasses or any glasses mm. at all. So therefore, if anyone was actually going to be trying to record or observe on their activities, they would be wearing such an, an accessory. And she would know that it only broadcasts over a particular distance. Therefore, one of the easiest ways to hide it would be to swallow the repeater. Really? That's a huge leap of logic. I did think this when it came up, because I thought it was far too coincidental that it was the very next scene that this happened. And there's the scene that comes up later on with the agent from the Justice Department who does sweeps of her apartment to see if there's hidden bugs. And the way that I feel that she's very much, she is into surveillance because that's how she's got the yearbook with the kid's photo in it later. It all strikes that there's a lot happening behind the scenes where she is very Mm. almost omnipotent, that she is using Mm. that to her advantage to scope out places, to watch people, to observe people, that she knows how this shit works. And that's what I think she's tipping her hand a bit here. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm. Right. The whole apple eating thing is about purging emotions. She gets them to purge their rational mind of logic, and this is symbolized by vomiting up the apple. And then she kind of reads Peter is how I took it. Yeah. Like having good psychology skill, basically. She saw there was something wrong, and, you know, I've seen people do something similar with people to bring out those kind of things. And he basically confesses about how his mother killed herself and about how he was abused by his grandfather. Yeah, and this is a huge turning point for Peter as a character, Mm. that he's been very emotionally distant and shut off until this stage, that we've perhaps seen echoes of this in his relationship with Lorna, and that this is a real breakthrough, that Maggie has, in this scene, been able to get to him in a way that nothing else seems to have possibly in his lifetime until now. Meanwhile, a strange woman, who we later learn is named Carol, flies into town. She checks into a hotel room, unpacks a secret compartment in her luggage that contains some strange equipment, and then after careful precautions, she opens up an envelope that contains a picture of Maggie and a short dossier. When it says strange equipment, I think it was pretty obvious she was sweeping for bugs. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but the fact that this equipment was hidden within her luggage in a secret compartment seems unusual if she is who she claims to be later. Yeah, I mean, if she is working for the security services, you know, alongside the police and so on, why would she have all these... I mean, what, what the equipment we're talking about are like Allen keys and screwdrivers and all the stuff you'd use to take apart the, the air conditioning unit and the, the phone and things like that in this rental hotel apartment to look for bugs. But why would she... I mean, she'd just have that in her case, surely. Why yeah. would she have that it's hidden in a gift box beneath a, an expensive scarf. That was kind of like, well, is she who she says she is? Because, yeah. I mean, we'll come back to it, right? Because later mm. on, there's a reveal towards the end. So let's come back to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also the whole dossier thing. Again, if she were some kind of federal agent, you'd expect her to have been briefed on her mission ahead of time Mm. or whatever, instead of almost acting like an assassin and just getting a dossier and target at the last moment. This whole thing is very, very weird and suspicious. In a later meeting, one of the followers asks Maggie what is going to happen in the near future. She explains that this is like one of them trying to be precise about what happened 10 years before they were born. And I think, you know, she's got a point there. You know, what happened mm. in... Well, although that when she did say what happened in 1959, because this guy was born in 69, I guess, or whatever. And I'm like, well, 1959, that's eight years before I was born. Cliff Richard has his first record. You know, you do know things <laughs> that happened like... I mean, I think I could pick most years. I don't know. Don't test me. But And think of a significant news event. Couldn't you... Well, I was trying to think of that in terms of the 1950s, and there were things you know, I could come up with from the late 50s mm. that I couldn't necessarily pin down to an exact year, like you know, Sputnik and the revolution in Hungary and stuff like that, where eventually dates came back to me about some of that, but they weren't necessarily the dates I was looking for. And also, you're probably better at that kind of trivia than your average person, so... Yeah, maybe. I don't know. So it probably is tricky, you know, but basically she's saying, well, they're asking her for proof of something that's going to happen next year or in the imminent future. And she's like, I don't know. I'm from 30 years in the future. I don't know what's going to happen next year. I I didn't like study history. Mm. Also wonderfully evasive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which raises the question. Mm -hmm. Again, I do think this is ambiguous because, yeah, it would be a good evasion. But at the same time, 
in her position, I wouldn't be able to do any better, Yeah, if that were true. I would counter that by saying she must know something, so why not just say something even if it's five years from now? Instead, she uses that example of, well, do you want to wait around for five years? My immediate response would be, yeah, if it proves you right. Hmm. But they are specifically asking about something one year in the future because they're looking for proof to justify their ongoing presence in the cult. Mm -hmm. Saying something five years in the future, yeah, I don't think would actually be that helpful. And, well, her point is to uh, to the guy that asked the question, what are you going to do for the next five years until this mm -hmm. event happens? If I tell you something that's going to happen in for our time, 2025, in five years' time, you're just going to be doubting me for the next five years. But then when you finally get your proof. Sure, but, you know. But what good is that going to do for the next five years? It's one hell of a way to say I told you so when you get to five years. Yeah, but the point of this isn't an I told you so exercise. Yeah, I, I think she could have handled it in a less standoffish and less, frankly, defensive manner. Because it really did hurt her side of the argument by being so. Hmm. And then we have this odd scene in which, I can't remember how it comes up. Someone's asking about the songs of the music of hmm. Maggie's time. And she says, there is this one song that was written about a year before I left and was very popular then. And they ask her to sing it and she gets very shy and reluctant and they eventually cajole her into doing so. The song was really popular right before I left. I'm so sorry, I can't. <laughs> sorry. sorry, we'll close our eyes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. huh. Okay. Oh, my life. It's changing every day. In every possible way. Oh, my dreams. It's never quite as it seems. Never quite as it seems. Do you want to try singing the last one? Because, oh, my life is changing every day in every possible way. Then the people sit round in puzzlement because the song that she's singing, as one of the group, Lamb, points out, is in fact a song called Dreams that was recorded by the Cranberries back in the 1990s. Tiff identified that immediately as it, uh, mm. she started singing within the first couple of lines. I, mean, I haven't got a clue yeah. what that song is, but she knew it. Oh, really? Mm. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. It's a well-known song. And I think this was a great example of what we talked about in the cults episodes when evidence is shown or maybe not evidence that undermines the leader's claims but what they show as evidence definitely doesn't back it up like you know or oh, the end of the world's going to be on you know mm. in a week's time and then it doesn't happen and it's like oh well you know it was just a test you know if you don't believe it that's up to you you can leave <laughs> and that's <laughs> kind of how it's treated isn't it and lamb's just dejected because uh, yeah. he, he he won't accept it or, he, or not so much he won't accept it, but he questions it. But then Maggie explains this to Peter as she remembers Lamb's girlfriend from the future, that she was mm. around as part of the cult, but Lamb wasn't. So that Maggie knows that he wasn't part of this whole thing. So it's almost like her rejecting him at this stage <laughs> is just fulfilling what already happened in her future. How remarkably convenient that she wasted all of her time catering to him as a member of the cult to just eject him later when she could have barred him entry from the very beginning. But on the other hand, if she knew that his girlfriend was a member and they came along as a pair, then it seems like it would have been fairly essential to keep him around until that point, just so that his girlfriend stayed around. Nah, I don't buy it. I think she is completely justifying why she kicked out a non-believer that called her on her bullshit. 
So after the meeting, Maggie speaks to Peter privately. She asks him to bring her his student, Abigail, this young girl in the red hat. And because Peter's there and he's like, oh, you know, what can I do to sort of prove my allegiance or whatever? And, and this is what she asked him to do. And he's, he's just shocked. Peter asks, why Abigail? And Maggie tells him that Abigail is her mother. You know, this young girl will grow up and give birth to Maggie, Britt Marling. And she says that Lorna and Peter will be ejected from the group if they refuse. Also in this scene, this is a private meeting in mm. Maggie's quarters, and she opens up the window and starts smoking a cigarette. This is mm -hmm. absolutely typical kind of group leader, kind mm -hmm. of cultish yeah. behaviour. Because, of course, she's not allerg allergic to nicotine like everything else she's supposedly allergic to. And she opens up the uh, the kind of the window to the outside world because, of course, she's no longer allergic to the air outside. Bullshit! Again, it's all bullshit! I've known people like this that they're so spiritually cleansed that they're telling all their followers, you must not smoke. But the leader, they're so spiritually cleansed, mm. it's all right for them. <laughs> I mean, you're saying that that's bullshit, Matt, but it could equally be self-delusion on her part. I mean, people do all sorts of stupid shit and justify it to themselves. I mean, just look around it. Everything that's going on with people wearing and not wearing masks, people knowing the health hazards involved there, but coming up with all sorts of excuses why it doesn't apply to them. People are capable of convincing themselves of whatever they want. Yeah. I think you could fake if you had an allergic reaction or not. But the fact she has nothing when she's already previously claimed I'm pretty much allergic to everything and has no adverse effects whatsoever, that's proof in itself. When Peter and Lorna discuss this new development, Lorna is shocked that Peter is considering what Maggie has asked of him. This proves more than Lorna can cope with and she walks out. Which I think is a completely justifiable, normal reaction. Yeah, because it started off with Lorna being perhaps the one who was more into it. Both Peter and Lorna were sceptics, but then it really swung, the balance really swung, and now Lorna, mm. earlier on, she's questioned Peter's focus on the project of making this documentary because she's like, we've been going to these meetings and you haven't been trying to make a documentary for like ages now. You've given up. You, you're buying into her stuff ever since she sort of talked to you about your grandfather yeah. and everything. So it's like Peter has been... You know, he, he's been convinced. There's also a scene, I don't think we've mentioned it explicitly, when Lorna's taken out by one of the other members of the cult out to be like a shooting range, mm. oh, uh, yes. and she's instructed on how to use a gun. Whereas that seems quite a, a tangential scene at the time, but it's referenced later, particularly in, well, I think, the, the very next scene, actually. Carol approaches Lorna, claiming to be from the Justice Department, and Maggie, she claims, is a con artist with a long string of prior felonies. Carol wants to arrest Maggie, but needs Lorna to draw her out of the cult compound. And it's mentioned that, oh, has she asked for a kid yet? Oh, have, has she started arming your militia and training them? And it suddenly makes you think, oh, so that's what that scene was about. Okay. And then yeah. likewise, the whole, oh, now, now kidnapping. Yep, this is another thing that's happened here. So it's kind of adding levels of MO to what she's doing. There's a nice bit from Carol, the apparent Justice Department woman, who says, you know, what has she asked for a child yet? And the other person says, uh, yeah, she has and everything. And Carol's about to explain what she wants the child for, what Maggie wants the child for, but she doesn't. Mm. It's not because of the whole mother-daughter relationship. It's for some other reason that is never explained. But again, all this depends on how much you trust what Carol is saying about who she is mm. and what her motivations are. Because, as I mentioned before, though this all seems very suspicious. And the whole shooting scene, for example... Yes, all right, that could be seen as what Carol mentions with training a militia and getting them ready for some kind of violent action. But it also equally ties in with this civil war coming. I want to make sure you know how to handle yourself. Tomato, tomato. Lorna agrees and returns to help Peter with uh, Maggie's request. Lorna's now kind of gone undercover working for this woman from the Justice Department, effectively. She convinces Peter to try and arrange this meeting between Maggie and the and the young girl, the pupil, in a public place so they can draw her out and the police can uh, capture. When this suggestion is put to Maggie, she's unhappy about it, but she agrees. Yeah, I think she's not given much choice at this stage if she wants to meet Abigail. Mm. You know, this is how it's got to be. 
So Peter finagles his way onto a school field trip to the library at Tar Pits by slashing the tyres of the teacher who's actually supposed to be taking the kids there. So obviously he's beginning to take some fairly, I guess, self-destructive action in pursuit of, of supporting Maggie's goals here. Once all the kids are there at the Tar Pits, Peter spirits Abigail away to a side room where Maggie is waiting for her. Although this this is a typical bit of counterploy where he turns up at the place that he's supposed to and then is told, no, take your shoes off, here's a phone and go in this other room. He's saying, but that's not mm. where we agreed. She, she likes being a bit of a control freak and doing things on her own terms, even though it's just down the corridor and one room away. And as soon as Maggie and Abigail meet, sort of in one of these back rooms of this uh, museum, they put their hands out and they perform this same handshake that Klaus used in the basement right at the start of the film, this strange prolonged handshake. And this like nine-year-old girl knows this handshake. And when Abigail asks Maggie how she knows her secret handshake, Maggie says, Abigail taught it to her. So what do we make of that? Because this was a complex kind of child's well almost like the hand clapping game mm. you know those those sort of hand clapping games that young children sometimes do and they get really fast and proficient at them and this is like a micro one of those and how would we explain it otherwise i just again put it down to surveillance because there is in that scene where maggie asks peter to do the abduction she pulls mm. up a yearbook of the school with her photo in it. She has done background, she has done research, and has probably been watching the kid for a hell of a long time. It's just surveillance. She's just watched it happen, recorded it, memorised it. That, boom, easy explanation. Yeah. So at this point, Carol then enters with a team of uniformed officers who arrest Maggie and put her in handcuffs. Peter and all the other cult members who are there are shocked by this, but Lorda just sort of gives this knowing smile to Peter. Well, actually, yeah, I... I went back and checked. Carol doesn't enter with the uniformed officers. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Carol, Carol meets Lorna down in like a parking lot or something and briefs her on what to do. And she's got an associate ah. with her in the car, who we assume is maybe another officer. But we don't see Carol with the uniformed officers. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, because they come in in like almost like full SWAT gear. Uh, I think they're just uniform cops, right? Oh, okay. well, they're, they're kind of silhouetted against bright light behind them. I yeah, think. yeah. I mean, they storm in and grab her and then read her her rights and drag Maggie away in handcuffs. Yeah, and as Maggie is taken away in handcuffs, Abigail asks Peter who Maggie is, and Peter says that he just doesn't know. Probably one of the very truest lines of the whole film. Yeah, I think so. And I don't think we have to be annoyed at the film that it was, you know, if you feel that, she definitely wasn't from the future, then it's a study of, you know, a con woman. And if you read it that she was from the future or that it's ambiguous, then you read it that way. I think it works either way. Yeah, absolutely. If it doesn't feel ambiguous to you, I think you're you're seeing it through that frame. But you can see how people would, mm. you know, like Peter does buy into it. And just like in the real world, this is totally something that people would buy into. And right at the end, I mean, we get Klaus and one of the other members they're kind of shocked at the betrayal of Peter allowing Maggie to get caught. And they say, let's go and ring the attorney. Klaus is very much like the the kind of older figure in this. He's almost, you could almost mm. say he's the cult leader. There's that scene that we didn't discuss where Maggie's talking about how she came back in time. Yeah. And it was basically just wandering the streets. This is some fucked up stuff. And Klaus was actually the one who picked her up and gave her a home and gave her a purpose. I mean, it's, yeah, it's almost like he was grooming her. Yeah. She was a young woman on the streets. And the first thing she remembers is waking up in a bath full of water. And she can barely remember her name. She can remember her date of birth, 31st of October, Halloween. I don't know if that's significant, but she can't remember anything else. I thought the whole thing was alluding to the fact that she'd woken up in a bath full of ice after having had one of her kidneys stolen, that it was that kind of urban <laughs> oh, legend wow. of organ harvesting. Yeah, I mean... That's how she's ended up maybe needing dialysis. That's how she's maybe ended up with memory loss. But then it takes a completely wacky turn. 
Also, before I forget it, we talked about the young girl getting injections in her feet between her toes. And when we first see Britt Marling as Maggie walking into the room in the shroud and the very first time we see her, we see her, I think it's her left foot has got like a spot of blood on it. It looks almost like the stigmata, but she's only got it on that one foot. So I'm like, no, and it was fairly subtle, but kind of like, okay, is she having these as well? Because there's some kind of genetic disease that Abigail has got that requires this medication. And then Maggie is having the same thing because she's inherited it from her mother. That does explain why they're getting the same injections. Mm. Or she's just a druggie trying to hide her track marks as well. And that was the end of the film. The use of music in the film is really good. They play a few tracks, bands like Hot Chip and things like that. But also just the background music I thought was nice. The score is kind of like chiming bells, kind of. I don't know, a bit new agey, but but kind of a bit dreamy, hypnotic kind of feel when they're down in the basement. I thought it was nice. The music was done, if I remember correctly, by uh, Batman Gleesh's brother, who is a, a musician. He's a member of the band Vampire Weekend. Right. Who I'm quite fond of. And yeah, yeah, I think he's done music for a few of their projects. That's one thing I really couldn't remember actually thinking about. I couldn't remember any of the music in the film. If you'd asked me, I would have probably said it had no soundtrack. Yeah, no, that's a fair comment. I mean, I often feel that about films. I'm like, did it have a soundtrack? I don't know. Maybe because I've watched it a second time, I, I kind of picked up on it. A film that this reminds me of, which is also very much about time travel, but a very different film, but likewise on a very small budget, was Primer. I mean, that's shot on film. Mm. They bought up a load of actual film stock, so it, it looks really good. But that was produced for a very low cost. I kind of felt in a similar way to this, you know, using fairly simple sets, but good performances and making really good use of what they had in a way that I'd watch it and didn't sort of clock that, oh, it's really low budget. A film plot that required an excessive amount of paracetamol for me to try and contemplate what the hell was going on. Yeah, (laughs) never look at the flow chart. No, I tried afterwards and just there was a point I got to in that film where I just then it's just static until about the last scene i think what did i watch i don't know we should maybe look at that one sometime but anyway that is the best film about time travel ever but also i guess unusually for a science fiction film or a film that is arguably science fiction Mm. the sound of my voice i don't think really has any special effects in it does it no no this is all done just through the characters and the premise of it, there's nothing ostensibly weird that happens on screen. I think probably the only, and this would be in inverted commas, effects may have been the vomiting scene. Yeah. I, oh, I think at one point they have to eat earthworms. Oh, yeah. I think there's a bit of CGI in there. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because some of them eat a worm. The worms are wriggling on their hand. Then you cut to them putting the worm in their mouth. And, you know, they do that thing to try and make it look like it's wriggling. But then Peter sucks one into his mouth and it's hanging out of his mouth and it's all kind of wriggling around. I looked at that this time and thought, I think that's CGI. It really doesn't matter. But I think that was, Mm. if it was CGI, I think that was probably the only bit of like what we'd call, you know, special effects. And also science fiction wise, is it science fiction? It's not if you read it like Matt read it, that there's no chance that she was from the future, in which case it's not science fiction. There's no science fiction at all. Yeah, I I didn't see it as that at all. On the other hand, the people who made the film described it as possibly being science fiction. Hmm. Possibly, but it's not. Possibly meaning it might be, it might not be. (laughs) Yeah. This whole thing about this not being a complete story, potentially, that they were, well, initially, as I said, developing this as a web series. So you've got these chapter markers fairly Mm. early on. Yeah, I think it went up to about eight or nine. Okay. They were pretty jarring from my angle because, A, that they were such amateurish title cards. I mean, they picked the most blandest font, put it in the worst, well, not one of the worst places on the screen, but a fairly... Really, that's not a user-friendly part of the screen at all to put it in. It kind of jarred with the whole amateurish style of the production, I thought. Is this going to turn out to be another indication that your television is configured completely weirdly? <laughs> no, part of the graphic designer in me thinking you really could have done a fucking better job. But <laughs> I mean, it was just bold black and white. I thought it was perfectly fine. I thought it worked fine. I, and I like... Mm the fact that it just sort of broke the film up into steps. I don't think there was any great significance to the chapter markings. 
often when we watch a film, you know, it might put a date up or something like that to give context, but actually the date isn't that important. Or, you know, it will say Tuesday and it's not really important that it's Tuesday. It's just kind of a, a marker that sort of fixes your attention on a certain point. And I thought that the effect of that was not a overall positive. I did wonder what this might have turned into if they'd continued the series, either as a web series or as a series of films. And I guess we've got at least part of the answer to that in the OA. Mm. But the OA is, I guess it feels almost like a sister project to this, in that it has some of the same premise, but at the same time, really quite different. The the bit that really struck me in retrospect as being one of the most similar between the two is, I think it's at the very end of the first season, um, where she sat round talking to all the kind of the ring of people around her, and that mm. that she's kind of outlining what's happening. Mm. That struck me as very similar to the scene at the beginning of the film, where she's saying, yeah. "Right, because I'm from the future." Blah blah blah. So yeah, that that's very thematically and very stylistically similar. Yeah, like she's the guru. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. So, uh, as always, the three of us don't agree on our opinions here, and Matt didn't enjoy this film and didn't enjoy the OA. I would say the OA is, if I had to rank series by the one that I'd like to get funded again, then I'd scrap everything else and get another series of the OA. Nah. (laughs) You can keep your Firefly and all that stuff. You can keep Firefly as well. I just did not like the OA at all. Okay, let's not list everything you didn't like, (laughs) Matt. We don't have time. Yeah, yeah. I like the OA. I've still not got around to seeing the second series. Oh, my God. The wind got sucked out of my sails a bit when I heard that it hadn't been renewed. Yeah. But, yeah, I keep meaning to go back and look at the second series of that. I was so fired up by the end of the second season. Okay, you can kind of end it there. That's fine. But it would have been really intriguing to see what they did with the third season. Ultimately, I felt similarly about this. Well, actually, no, I probably preferred the OA to this. I certainly didn't dislike Sound of My Voice by any means. But at the same time, I didn't find it particularly gripping. I thought it was a fairly good low-budget film, had some good performances, some nice ideas. But, yeah, I don't know, it didn't really sing for me. It just came across as a bit pretentious to me, thinking, oh, we're going to try and make this something ambiguous when it really isn't. I found it totally mesmerising and captivating, and yeah, I loved every minute of it. Again, I think the fact that you don't see any ambiguity in it says more about (laughs) you than the film, Matt. Just to wrap up, this is a a, a kind of a cult-related film. Are there any other cult-related films that we would want to recommend to people? The Wicker Man, that's good. (laughs) Yeah. I really had a trouble trying to think of cult films or films that featured cults as their kind of central thing. They're just not things in films that grip me by the sound of it, because I had a really hard job trying to think of any. There's a fair number that I've seen in recent years. There's a film called Faults from a few years ago. We talked very briefly in the Cults episodes about the idea of deprogramming. And Faults is about a cult deprogrammer Mm. who is hired by a family to kidnap and deprogram their daughter. And, um, yeah, it's about this sort of very strange battle of wills going on between the daughter and the cult deprogrammer. And, yeah, I think it's a really quite a cool film. Now, that would interest me because that's pretty much almost the exact same setup to the beginning of Jackals. But then it turns into a slasher when they get about five minutes into deprogramming. The whole film became a bit of a failure for me at that point. But yeah, that that sounds like something I'd be willing to get behind. There's a film called Martha Marcy May Marlene from a few years back as well. It's kind of an odd film in that it's about a woman who's left a cult and dealing with the fallout from that and trying to readjust to the outside world. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily go very much into the, the cult aspects of it. It's much more about the repercussions of leaving the cult rather than the cult itself. Again, I think that's that's really quite an effective, you know, a little creepy at times, but yeah, but certainly a very good character study. One which I think you, you mentioned you'd seen as well, Matt, which was The Sacrament. Uh. Yeah, which I thought was an interesting failure, but definitely a failure. It was made by Ty West, who'd made a number of very cool films like The Innkeepers. If you watch it, it is absolutely a film about Jonestown. The central character in it is very much Jim Jones. It's very much the compound there. But at the same time, he's fictionalised it all while keeping 
all the same elements. And it just seems kind of bizarre to do that, to make a film about Jonestown, but it's not Jonestown. Yeah, and in a slightly different location, but also with some very overt towards the end supernatural elements. But by God, that film was far too long. They could have shaved an hour off it, I think, and it probably would have been a lot more succinct and focused story. That would have improved it a hell of a lot. And there's a book I read a couple of years back, which I believe is being made into a film at some stage, a book called The Girls by Emma Klein, which I didn't realise until I was looking it up yesterday, actually won the Bram Stoker Award a couple of years back. I guess a bit like The Sacrament, it's a fictionalised analogue of a member of the Manson family. But it's not Charles Manson and the Manson family in the book. It's it's a sort of very similar organisation. But it's about this girl who, I think she's about 14 when it happens, joins up with the cult. And then a lot of the book is the flashback to that happening. But also there's a lot of it in the present day where she's now in, I guess, her late 50s, early 60s, and is sort of dealing with the notoriety of who she used to be I thought it was a very nicely written book. At the same time, I wanted more from it. I I thought it was an interesting character study. It's a bit light on story. Well, I look through our back catalogue and ones that jump out at me that we've already talked about, as Matt mentioned, Wicker Man. That's Mm. a classic cult film. Um, I mean, folk horror, but it's a a local cult for local people. (laughs) Uh, Midsummer. I mean, if that's not a cult. And Martyrs. Yeah, so when I look back at, because I was thinking about what films we could do that look at a cult, and I was looking for ideas, and you know that's why I thought sound of my voice. But you know, looking at a lot of the ones we've already done, I think you know they definitely appeal to us. Films about cults, and I guess they're a good kind of horror trope, really. And I guess Lord of Illusions as well. You know, also has a cult at the centre of it. What I probably didn't think of those when I was trying to think back about cults is that it seemed like the cult was almost a secondary aspect to the film that they happen to be a cult in it like with lord of illusion you see them at the beginning and you see them at the end and apart from a couple of the acolytes that you see peppered throughout the rest of the film trying to do the bad guys bidding but it's not really them that's the focus of the film whereas i think definitely sound of my voice the cult is 100 percent the heart and center of the film yeah and likewise sacrament as well but yeah the others they do seem to be secondary even i'd say probably to an extent the wicker man it's they're almost secondary because it's very much howie's story Hmm. it's the investigation to try and find where Rowan Morrison is. But then it's, oh, big reveal, it's a cult at the end of it. It just seems secondary to everything else that's gone on. No, fair comment. I mean, Mm. but yeah, they feature a cult, but they're not necessarily about a cult, if you like, Mm. yeah, centrally. So is there anything that you'd steal from Sound of My Voice for your games, anything that it might inspire? As much as I didn't like the film, I do appreciate the lengths, as you say, given my interpretation of what's happened, the length to which the antagonist has gone to to build up some kind of foundation for their bullshit story and to show how that there has to be a large amount of background prep that if the players then find out in the course of play that one little thread that can unravel, almost a bit like using a, a visual metaphor from Cabin in the Woods where the guy finds the uh, fiber optic cable and then starts pulling it out. It's that one little thing that then starts Mm. the rest of the lie falling apart. That I can appreciate. Mm. Well, and I guess as well, along those lines, if you wanted to flip it on its head and have uh, someone who was trying to hide the more mythos aspects of their cult, perhaps trying to pass it off as something more benign, you could have a similar kind of misdirections and ambiguities there just always trying to keep the investigators on their toes about whether this really is a mythos cult whether this is something else whether it is just a charlatan whether it's something more benign that's quite an uneasy dynamic though that said a lot of call of cthulhu players would just go in there and shoot them all anyway they're cultists they kind of deserve it by the name (laughs) (laughs) one thing that we didn't mention is that at the start of the film, Peter and Lorna, let's say our player characters, they're going into this place, they're they're washing themselves, they're cleansing themselves, they're putting on these different robes, they're taking off all their sort of personal possessions. This isn't their first day on this. They've been in another group, a shopping centre or something like that, where they've been vetted and selected and managed to get vetted and selected Mm to this upper level of the cult so there's some kind of like let's say new agey group class 
going on and they'll be fishing for people who are interested in this and then slowly upping their levels upping their ranks in the class and then slowly like asking them leading questions sort of see you know how interested are they so not everybody's going to get to this level not everybody's going to get to meet maggie it'd be pretty dull film if they didn't (laughs) so you know it'd be a good place to start the game just like the film does is the pcs are just getting to this level i guess well going back to the original idea that the script that i mentioned earlier the idea that this is effectively an internet presence that people potentially stumble across through chat rooms or social media well it wouldn't be in social media in 2010 necessarily that's perhaps the first level of the filter that you discover their online presence and then is that leap about do i trust these people enough to meet up in person maybe yeah But also, as far as plot hooks go, that whole setup of the two of them making the documentary film and going undercover in the cult to do so, I think is a great potential setup for a scenario. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Particularly if you as the keeper are there trying to do what Maggie did and get at least one of the characters to start sympathizing with the cult's aims. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that being tricky to do. I mean, certainly to get some sympathy would be, you know, if it, particularly if it is ambiguous, then I could see some of the player characters or some of the players rather, you know, questioning in a kind of metagame way, are we being tricked here to think that these are evil cultists when actually they're not? And there'd be some division mm. amongst the uh, players over that issue. Not for Matt, obviously. They'd just <laughs> kill them all. Yeah, he's <laughs> going all guns blazing in the first scene. They let God sort them out. Given the setup, I think it's because we've had a couple of one-on-one scenarios published fairly recently for Call of Cthulhu. I think this would be mm. a good two-on-one. I wouldn't recommend any more than mm. two players because, as you say, it then becomes yeah. weight of numbers. You have that one single player that has been caught on the keeper's hook, and then the rest of them are all just clones of me going, It's bullshit! Just kill them! You'd be outweighed and the kind of the illusion of what you're trying to create would be broken far too quick. Mm. But also this presents a setup that we don't necessarily see in a lot of Call of Cthulhu games, where these are non-violent characters, Lorna and Peter. They're not classic Call of Cthulhu investigators. They don't have shotguns. They don't have pistols. They they don't have any weapons. They don't have violent inclinations. They're not the kind of people who are going to go in there and sort out the cult by hurting anyone. I think that scene out on the shooting range pretty much proves that Lorna just has her base 25% in uh, firearms handgun. No, hold on. She was a really good shot. Yeah, she just rolled some really good shots because she didn't know how to hold the gun in the first place. She didn't just have base 25, is what I'm saying. She must have, like... Yeah, she just rolled I mean, really well. What With no training, suddenly she's really good at... I mean, she puts about six shots in the head oh. on the target. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes the dice love you. <laughs> Maybe she's just really lucky at rolling dice. <laughs> but that whole non-violent approach to investigation is something that, personally, I'd really want to see more of in Call of Cthulhu, because going into that cult and thinking, yeah, they're a bit sus, let's get the guns and just shoot everyone, is the most boring possible way of approaching that. But it's so satisfying. I long for the day when you take a non-violent approach, Scott. What was that, about (laughs) percussive investigation and a D6 damage bonus stroke (laughs) clue accumulator? But I guess the point I'm making is that the majority of Call of Cthulhu scenarios do have that expectation that this is the approach that you're going to take, that violence is the solution. And I think setting the expectations with the players, perhaps discussion ahead of time that, yeah, okay, let's play this, but let's try something different. Let's try to avoid violent resolutions to this. Your characters are not violent people. You don't have any combat skills. Let's see where this goes. I don't think that's necessarily a bad talk to have ahead of time. I just wonder how long it takes before it suddenly turns into falling down. (laughs) Falling down? Uh, The film with Michael Douglas that he starts off as just maybe a slightly angry guy, and it just escalates further and further and further. Fair enough. Your role model, Matt, isn't it? I was going to say, I I do very much see him as my uh, my idol when it comes to going into work every morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, it is that time when we would like to say thank you to people. Well, obviously, thank you to you for listening to the podcast in the first place. We really appreciate that. And thank you very much to everyone who has backed us at any stage. The money that you have given us has kept the podcast going and continues to do so. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. 
Thank you very much to Juju. A lovely name here. The disconcertingly real Mr. Spike. Oh, yes, who I played with at the recent online convention that we had. A lot of fun to game with. And thank you very much to Kasper Nozazewski. As ever, I hope we're getting your name right there. If we have completely mangled it, or sorry, if I have completely mangled it, then please get in touch and I'll have another run at it. And thanks to Mike Giamalva. And thanks so much to Zachary Jenkins. Thank you very much to Michael Kremen. And thank you to Tim. There's some that call him Tim. And also thanks to John Cohorn. Aha, uh-huh. and another person I played with at our online convention. Thank you very much to Michael Dureen. And thank you to Romulan Rena, Who I also played with at the convention. There's a lot of familiar <laughs> names here. And also thank you much to Fabio Venturini. And thank you to Anthony Braddock Southgate. And finally, thanks very much to Michael Garland. Okay, well, that's all we got for this week. So uh, join us next time when you can listen to the sound of our voices once more. See what I did there? That had more relevance to our podcast than that title had to the rest of that fucking film. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) It comes up in the film, Matt. Were you not paying attention? Yes, I was. I was waiting desperately to find out why the hell they called it that. And then it's one throwaway line. (laughs) That's it. Cut, cut. (laughs) It's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. BlasphemousTomes.com Uh...